0: This is John Halsman and welcome to the Patrick Henry podcast, where we look at the defenders of liberty throughout the world, the perils that stand in their way and the opportunities that are out there. And today we get Dickensian with you. We look at a tale of two countries, Britain and France, confronting our new era. But in a lot of ways, Britain and France and their different strategic trajectories go back to the Suez Crisis in 1956. At this key moment, when the British and the French behaved as they had throughout their colonial history and invaded Colonel Nasser's Egypt for having the temerity to seize the Suez Canal from them, they found to their horror that at last they could no longer do what superpowers do, which is pretty much whatever they want. That Eisenhower, worried about America's reputation as an anti colonial power in the Cold War with the developing world, chose to side with Nasser to the consternation and shock. Of Britain, France, and Israel sided with Nasser and through allowing a run on the British currency and making it clear the United States did not stand with Britain and France and the old colonial powers that their day as empires was done. And from this shock that they were no longer superpowers in 1956 Britain and France drew absolutely opposite conclusions. The French said the Americans are not to be trusted We must move forward with Europe as a superpower, creating our own bloc, navigating between the Soviets and the Americans as a third pole of power in the world. And when Charles de Gaulle came back to power in 1958 and founded the French Fifth Republic, largely as a consequence of France's humiliation over Suez, this became the guiding principle of French foreign policy from 1958 up until this very day. There is no surprise that Emmanuel Macron, the, pr- the current president of France, has a picture of de Gaulle in his private study. Gaulism has been France's foreign policy ever since Suez, which is the Americans are not to be trusted. And although we tilt toward them in the global scene, now the Chinese rather than the Soviets, we want to maintain an independent policy as a third pole of power, a third superpower, harnessing Europe to French imperial designs. And this was a very coherent, very elegant solution to the Suez problem. Britain, on the other hand, went with the exact opposite point of view as Harold Macmillan comes to power after Eden falls over Suez. Macmillan coming to power very close to Eisenhower in World War II. He'd worked with him cheek by jowl, and they'd gotten along famously. And Macmillan draws the Anglosphere Lesson that America, our cousins, are now the dominant force in the world and we must use the advantages we have with the Anglosphere as Sundance to America's Butch Cassidy to draw ever closer to them, never again striking out on our own in a separate position from them, harnessing the Americans to what we wish to do. As Macmillan not so modestly put it to the amusement of Americans ever since with his classical education, that Britain would be the wily Athenians whispering into the ears of the powerful but brutish Romans, telling them what to do, navigating through them power in the new era they found themselves in. And every time I've said this in Britain, involuntarily, many British heads begin to nod. True or not, Britain drew this opposite conclusion that it must use the anglo to hitch its wagon to the American star and that this was the way to maximize power as time went on. Obviously, these were totally separate lessons, but with Brexit, this became ever starker. As the French say to the British, good riddance. You leave, and where can you possibly go? Cast out of Europe, from our Gaullist point of view, you've just given up the only meal ticket you have to great power status again, and you will be just one of a series of middling powers, in essence, an island off the coast of great power Europe, and that is a strategic calamity for you. The British, on the other hand, didn't see this through a Gaullist lens, predictably, but through an Anglosphere lens, saying, now that we're not shackled with a Europe that is economically sclerotic, militarily impotent, other than France, and politically divided, we can decisively strike out on our own, setting a Drakeian foreign policy, getting on our ship as freebooters, joining with the Anglosphere in the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Honorary members, India and Japan, set out on our own and craft a new foreign policy fit for purpose in our new world. And so these are the two competing theories of the case as things have moved on. Well, where are we since Brexit? Well, on macroeconomic issues, I think the jury is still out on Brexit, although I've always been favorable to Brexit and indeed uniquely called Brexit, my firm did. Uh, called that Brexit would indeed happen, unlike almost every other political risk consulting firm you can name, because I actually talked to people outside of the ruling elite in London and had a sense of where this was going. I knew Dominic Cummings and the other leaders of the Leave campaign and knew that they could run rings around those who wish to remain. And that most British people really did care about sovereignty and that British culture and history though allied certainly to Europe by geography, was different and separate and much more anglosphere centric than European cheerleaders would allow for. And so this has always been my view as things have gone on. Um, But the jury's out economically. The key question macroeconomically is in the next five to 10 years can Britain strike definitive free trade deals with the Anglosphere? Australia, Canada, New Zealand. But then key, the key fact is also India and Japan, factory Asia. Can it use this newfound freedom to strike better free trade deals than the EU would? And that, that's the question. It's a policy question, not a religious question, as so many have made Brexit. My guess is that, and of course, crucially with the United States, in the next five to 10 years. My guess is that Britain can and that this will be worth it, but that's a policy question and the jury is still out. But strategically, there is no doubt, no doubt at all, that Britain has got the better of France through Brexit. The AUKUS deal just negotiated between Australia The United States and the UK to ostensibly sell Australian nuclear powered submarines, which they surely need given the great expanses of the Indo-Pacific so they can remain out of base in Perth for a foreseeable period of time. But it's about far more than submarines. It's about basing British and American troops in Australia. It's about working together on AI, cybersecurity matters. The three are already in the Five Eyes, Intelligence Sharing Consortium, along with New Zealand and Canada, the greatest intelligence sharing group in the world, which shares signals intelligence, open source together in a way they simply do not with anyone else in the world. Um, Building on this, it's a defense pact, and there's no way in the world that the UK could have struck this pact with Australia and the united states if it had been part of the eu still this is one of the fruits of brexit that britain can craft an anglo centric independent foreign policy independent trade policy and see if that works better well obviously in the indo-pacific which is the crucial region in the new era we live in where most of the world's future growth is going to come from and most of the world's future Geostrategic risk is going to come from that. This has been a winner right away because Australia, gunned to its head, chose to side with, with Britain and the United States and its Anglosphere allies in crafting a response to China. And Australia is also part of the Quad with India, Japan, and the United States, another Anglo ish kind of grouping. And that these two groupings, the Quad and AUKUS, are providing the political and strategic and security response to China. that They're at the forefront, whereas Europe is not. Well, from a British point of view, this confirms the victory of Macmillan over De Gaulle, that getting closer to the Americans and all the Anglo-Sphere countries have in common, a common strategic view. Again, a key fact to keep in mind is that in the three world wars of the 20th century, World Wars I, II, and the Cold War, the five Anglister nations, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United States, and the UK, on every single one of those 15 occasions sided together, sided against the Soviets, against Hitler and Imperial Japan, and against the Kaiser. And in each case, in siding together, this is a remarkable strategic continuity that is unremarked upon. When you couple this with the investment flows that Canada is the largest foreign direct investor in the United States, Britain is third, Japan honorary member of the Anglosphere is second, that the Anglosphere invests in one another, that it shares intelligence with one another through five eyes, that strategically it shoots together. So economically, strategically, and politically, these countries all side together. Britain can now logically follow this up by having ever closer ties, including the AUKUS Defense Pact with the U.S., and Australia. It could never have done this through the EU. It artificially was always going to be outvoted in the EU by France and Germany, which would pursue a very different, a continental Gaullist or neutralist foreign policy, which kept it apart from the rest of the Anglosphere. Now unbound from the EU, the the UK can do what it ought to have done in the first place. Go back to Macmillan and side ever closer terms with the Anglosphere, which is where the UK belongs and where it maximizes value by being the key pivotal player in setting up the AUKUS Defense Pact. And so the Macmillanite strategy continues onward. There's a lot of continuity here in the new era, and history allows us to see this. Those of my opponents who uh, run political risk firms based on political science don't have any idea of this. You have to see that history is likely to remain the same, and that's what we have here the British turning as they do. Well, what of France? Well, they have a, a huge problem that implicit in de Gaulle's argument as to why the Anglosphere uh, is not a, going to a ticket for the UK and why the French model, the Gaullist model, which is far different, which is simply that indeed the EU is the ticket for France's great power status, that France will harness german economic power to its strategic ends and this worked after world war ii when the germans were trying to overcome the stain of nazism it works less well 75 years later when nazism is no longer a stain on germany when everyone sees germany as merely a difficult ally when german economic and mercantilist terms lead to a neutralist policy which is not what the french want the french want a gaullist policy that indeed tilts against China, but as an independent pole of power, not under the American umbrella. Well, there are problems for this, and and, and let's look at the two main ones, which are the strategic impotence of Europe and the political divisions of Europe. The Gaullist bet only works if the EU follows a French Gaullist line and has capability. At the moment, the EU has neither. It neither follows a French Gaullist line, nor does it have capability. Other than the French, who have full-spectrum military capability, meaning they can do everything from high-end war fighting. the French have an excellent army, a superb army, but no one else in the EU has anything, that, that the French have to look upon Germany, Italy, and Spain, the next big three, who spend almost no money on defense, and indeed have been shamefully free-riding off the United States for the last two generations, my football team Could take these three armies. And the French don't want this. They need the rest of Europe to have capability so they become a multiplier for what the French want to do. But instead, the Germans spend around 1.5% of GDP on defense, the Spanish remarkably less, and the Italians less as well. So these are three areas that need to be countries that need to be motivated by the French to spend more. So the French say, well, why don't we, you know, sideline NATO and have a common European strategic identity, particularly after AUKUS, where the French have been humiliated, where Australia said thanks but no thanks to EU security ties. I'd much rather go with the Anglister, which might actually deter the Chinese, which the, the EU won't deter anyone from doing anything It will merely snub people at cocktail parties, which isn't likely to stop the Chinese bullying people in the Indo-Pacific, whereas the Anglosphere will come out shooting together, which might indeed deter them. French humiliation at being seen as a lesser power has pushed Macron to really further his efforts to, to, to realize the Gaulist dream, and that is a common European defense autonomy outside of NATO. But the problem is that within NATO or without of NATO, there is no empirical evidence whatsoever and a mountain of evidence against that the Germans, the Italians, and the Spanish want to give up their six-week holidays in order to have a stronger military and spend more money on that. They would far rather free ride off of NATO, criticize from the cheap seats, and retire at ridiculously early levels. Remember, the Europeans account for four percent of the world's Demography, 20% of the world's GDP, and 50% of the world's social spending. This is a decadent society that is not about to give up the things this 50% spending to make the French happy. So there's no sign that having an autonomous defense capability will make Europe spend one more Copec than they would otherwise. And if this is the case, it's just France and a bunch of people who can perform some very good niche operations but nothing on its own. And that isn't enough strategic heft for anybody to take the EU, meaning France, seriously. Even if they did spend more money, and there's absolutely no evidence that anybody in Italy, Spain, and Germany, any of the major parties want to spend significantly more military funds, which they would have to do to realize the Gaulist dream. Even if they did, they're pulling in three opposite directions. Whereas the French are gaullist and want to unite Europe around an anti-Chinese tilt, but not under the American umbrella, Germany... Is still enthralled with its mercantilist neutralism. Nobody wants to spend the 2% NATO requires. Indeed, the Greens want to do away with the 2% because it's embarrassing to them that they never meet their goal and are shamefully free riding. They are neutralists, their number one trading partner is China. They want to keep selling China stuff to keep their export-driven economy moving ahead. Their last thing they want. Is to pick a fight with china and indeed the outgoing Merkel administration tried to force the eu into an investment treaty with china that was scuppered only by chinese intransigence and the europeans making muted criticisms of the horrendous treatment of the uyghurs in western Xinjiang province the chinese pulled the plug contemptuously on the eu but Merkel was desperately trying to solidify these economic gains they are not going to pull the Germans, who are the key economic motor of Europe, are not going to pull in a significantly anti-Chinese position, however long the French or the Americans beg them to. Mercantilism and neutralism, explained German foreign policy yesterday, today, and tomorrow. On the other hand, the northern European states and the eastern European states, fearful of Russia and very grateful for the American strategic guarantee, which is real to them, not theoretical, don't want to do away with nato so when the french look at their two key components they look at the germans who want to be neutralists and the northern and eastern europeans who value nato immensely and are worried about the french undermining nato so it simply doesn't work the gaullist gamble that europe is not united and doesn't have the military capability and if this is the case you're going to see more aukuses in the future more australians saying thanks but no thanks The EU passing resolutions that have no force at all and snubbing their enemies at cocktail parties isn't going to cut it in the new world. The problem with Europe is it only has carrots and not sticks. And we live in a world that is not populated entirely by rabbits. Because the world is not populated by rabbits, because there need to be more than just carrots out there, and the EU has no sticks, has no capability, and is divided over what to do with the capability it does have, Instead of rabbits, you find tigers in the jungle. You find the Chinese, you find Putin's Russia, you find even other great powers like the Anglosphere in the US, increasingly looking contemptuously at an EU that can't get the job done strategically. When I just went to the conference I talked about, everyone was saying the EU needs to do its homework. Mrs. Merkel's famous, if vapid phrase, if I had a dollar for every time anybody told me the EU needed to do its homework, I'd be rich. The problem is that homework date is now overdue, and it isn't second grade anymore. All the other students are going to college. History has passed the EU by already, although it doesn't know it. And the French Gaullist gamble, which made perfect sense in 1958. De Gaulle is a master strategist who ought to be studied far more by historians. But that Gaullist gamble has failed as the EU has not lived up to its hopes in terms of capability or in terms of political unity. But the Macmillanite UK gamble, which is go in with the United States, get closer to the United States, not farther apart as the French are, this has worked out with its fruition being seen in the Anglosphere now taking the lead in challenging China in the pivotal Indo-Pacific. For this reason, and this critical reason alone, Brexit is worth it. Britain has recharted its foreign policy around the old course has gone back to the old course, gone back to the future, and refound the Anglosphere as the future. While the French Gaullist gamble, which made a lot of sense in 1958, by 2021 has been proven to be a busted flush. In this tale of two countries, because of Brexit and the Anglosphere, Britain has strategically bested France, hence the French fury at seeing themselves move down the pecking order in terms of great power status. The Gaullus Gamble has failed. Thanks very much for listening to the Patrick Henry podcast about our tale of two countries, which I've really enjoyed doing. The great thing about knowing some history is that you can go back in time and see these ebbs and flows and everything makes sense. As Cicero said, those who don't understand history are doomed to remain forever children. I hope you enjoyed this and please do subscribe so that we can all move forward together. I'm honored that our podcasts are booming. The Patrick Henry podcast, the around the world in 20 minutes podcast are around our serialization of the book um, has been great and our three things to think about today. Briefings are doing wonderfully. So thank you so much. I will continue to spend more and more time doing this. I love Substack. I love the freedom it gives me to not have middlemen, edit newspaper editors, uh, even good ones, uh, book publishers, even good ones, but to talk to you directly in an unvarnished, honest, hopefully funny and incisive way about how the world really works. But to do that, you have to subscribe, and those of you who've been subscribing, please do continue, and so many of you are. I'm thrilled please do continue to give the $70 a year or $7 a month Starbucks price so we can do this without fear or favor and give you the best political risk analyst um, in the world. Thank you so much and on to the next.